If you turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians, I'm going to read from uh, verses uh, 6 to 15, but going to focus our thoughts this evening on verses 8 uh, to 10. But first, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, as we come to you at the end of this your day, we would pray, O Lord, that you would lift the veil from our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would take your words, words written so long ago and in such a very different place. And yet your words, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would take those words and apply them to our hearts with pungency, uh, that we might see not only with greater clarity the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we might understand with greater depth our status in and before him. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Praise God for his holy word. I'm sure that everybody here has at some point uh, reflected upon the meaning of life. The fact you're out at church on a Sunday evening uh, would seem to indicate that the meaning of life is something that you reflect on with a great deal of regularity. I would suggest it is a question that is asked by all human beings. I think it is impossible to live as if life had no meaning. Even the hardest-hearted atheist who denies God's existence is still almost certainly outraged at the death of a child. will ask why this has taken place. will use it perhaps to prove God's non-existence. And yet in placing some value In the life of the child that has gone, he acknowledges there is some meaning somewhere. And Paul here is addressing just that kind of issue. Paul's concern for the Colossians is this, that they're being tempted by these false teachers whom he does not care to identify in any great detail, but his concern is that they're being tempted by these false teachers to seek the meaning of life elsewhere other than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does in this passage, and he does indeed throughout the whole letter, is remind them again and again that it is Jesus Christ who gives everything ultimate value and meaning. And I'll look at just three aspects of these three verses uh, this evening. 
I want to look at the imperative that Paul sets forth here, the command that he gives them. Secondly, I want to look at the foundation upon which he rests that command. And thirdly, I want to look at the reality that he describes about the status, the experience, the situation in which these Christians find themselves. So the imperative, the foundation, and the reality. First of all then, the imperative, the command. That comes right at the start of the passage. See to it, he says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In very general terms, what Paul is doing here is warning the Colossians about false teaching. Almost certainly there's something specific going on in the background. But he doesn't tell us too much about exactly what's going on in the background. We can infer some things from the things that he pushes out in this letter. But I think the imperative he gives, the reason he gives it in these sort of uh, less well, less clearly defined terms is this. It's a general imperative for all Christians. It's not just tied to the temptations the Colossians may be facing. It's something that all Christians, in every day and in every generation, will face. Each era has its own particular form in which these things will present themselves, but the general imperative to be wary of worldly wisdom remains the same. He calls this teaching philosophy and empty deceit. Now, philosophy for us today often has a pretty narrow and technical meaning. If you go to Grove City College and you look up in the, uh, the handbook or look up on the website, philosophy, you're taken to a very particular department. Two of my colleagues at Grove are paid to teach philosophy. It's pretty narrow and focused kind of discipline. Paul is using the term here much more broadly. Perhaps we use it this way ourselves. You might say to somebody, well, you know, what's your philosophy of life? How do you think about the world? Paul is really here using the term in a very broad sense. This temptation that you might be feeling from these false teachers, he says, it's, it's leading you potentially towards thinking about life in general terms in a way that is incorrect. What Paul is really doing here, I suppose, is this. He's contrasting the Christian way of thinking about life with every other way of thinking about life. It's not the first time that he's spoken about false teaching in this letter. Uh, a few verses earlier, in verse 4, in chapter 2, he talks about plausible arguments. Clearly there's something going on. Here, though, Paul is becoming much sharper. He talks about deceitfulness. No one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And deceit is a very morally loaded word. I was reading a review of a book by a friend yesterday. And at the start of the review, the reviewer made some comment about this friend's book saying, you know, it contains all the errors of his previous book, plus he adds this to it, dishonesty. And I thought, wow, that is a strong thing to say. 
It is one thing to have a book reviewed where the person doesn't agree with what you're saying. That's sort of legitimate. But when somebody says, no, the writer's being dishonest, well, that goes beyond saying that somebody's not argued well to saying that there's a fundamental depravity, if you like, to what they're doing. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He talks about deceit. Well, what does he mean in this context? I think we might summarize it in this way. He's talking about a way of thinking, a way of thinking about the world that promises something that it knows it cannot deliver. Promises something that it fails to deliver. Now again, we don't know exactly what these promises are in this ancient Colossian context, but we can certainly see in our own world there are a lot of ways of thinking about the world that promise that which they fail to deliver. Consumerism. Every time you switch on the TV and see a commercial, what are you being told? Buy this thing and you will be happy. Buy this thing and your life will be fulfilled in some way. That's empty deceit. That's empty deceit. The world does not consist, the meaning of the world does not consist in buying stuff. Politics. Politics left and right is tempted, is it not, by what you might call messianic aspirations. Remember when I arrived in America in 2001 and uh, chatting to somebody and I said, what do I need to know about American politics? He said, the only thing you need to know is this, and he laughed, he said, is every four years we elect the Messiah. So it was a fascinating comment. Now politics is important. And it's important to elect the right people. It's important to elect those who will put down the evil and protect the weak, the innocent, the vulnerable. But ultimately, politics cannot deliver heaven on earth. We do not elect the Messiah every four years. Science. Some put the great confidence in science as being able to deliver immense and wonderful progress. Even in some of the prayers we've heard uh, the pastor pray tonight, we, we get a hint of some of the great things that science has delivered when we pray for those who are ill and we pray for the technical skill of those who care for them. It's great to live in a world, isn't it, where we have such people, where science has advanced to the point where diseases that once upon a time would have been deadly, I think it's less than 100 years ago, was it Calvin Coolidge's son, died from blood poisoning, contracted because he got a blister while playing tennis. Nobody dies of that these days. Science has delivered huge and wonderful things to us. And yet it's also brought great evil. Science that gave us penicillin also gave us the Holocaust and the H-bomb. Science in and of itself is not going to deliver heaven on earth. Simply can't do that. One of the more amusing cults of the past, I was thinking, is the hygiene cult of the 19th century. If we could all just wash more often and have clean homes, everything would be great. I remember early on in my, uh, uh, when I was doing my pastoral internship, and I, I read it before, but I reread uh, Ian Murray's first volume uh, of his biography of the, the great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And one of Lloyd-Jones's, I think, first public speeches to some men's club in Wales was a polemic against people who showered every day. 
And I think, that's crazy. You know, I shower every day. Why would you have a speech against people who shower every day? Isn't that a good thing? But in context, I think he was getting at the idea that just being bodily clean was enough to deliver heaven on earth. The cult of beauty, the list goes on. All of these things we can think about. Promise but fail to deliver. In our world, yes. There is philosophy and empty deceit all around us. Also, think about the things that offer an account of reality that's really no true account of reality at all. Uh, soap operas. I'm always amazed in soap operas that uh, you know, marriage, somebody's marriage falls apart this week. Six weeks down the line, they're completely recovered from it. Totally unrealistic view of what it is to be a human being. Abortions, death of loved ones, sexual promiscuity. All of these things are presented as cost-free, inexpensive, things you can recover from really quickly. Empty, empty deceit. And Paul, he's not thinking about soap operas here, but the principle applies. Paul is setting forth a command here that in your day and your generation, what are the philosophies and the empty deceits that promise, plausibly, seductively promise, that which they can never deliver? He goes on and uh, gives us a bit more flesh to this. He talks about these things being according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Perhaps he's playing on the use of the word tradition here that Jesus uses when he whacks the Pharisees for their human traditions that they've added to the word of God that end up subverting it. Possible. Perhaps there's a form of what we call legalism. Self-righteousness finding its way in the Colossian church. What is clear, I think, is whatever this tradition represents, it represents a merely human, simply creaturely speculation on the nature of reality. And that, I think, the evidence for that is given us in this next phrase. The elemental spirits of the world phrase will occur three other times in the New Testament, Colossians 2.20. Paul will say, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Galatians 4.3, in the same way also when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Then Galatians 4.9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It's an interesting phrase. When Paul uses a phrase like that repeatedly, you've got to ask yourself, well, what exactly does it mean? It's kind of, he's clearly a technical phrase of some kind. There's something he has in mind when he's using this specific form of words. And there are three ways the commentators on these passages offer for thinking about this phrase. One of them is this, that he's talking about the fundamental components of the universe, the material things that make up the universe. In Paul's day, probably earth, air, fire and water, they were the four elements out of which they thought everything material was composed. So that's one possible meaning. Second possible meaning is 
the essential principles of a particular area of study. Maybe Paul has a very, very narrow, very narrow idea, something very technical that he's pointing to. And thirdly, spiritual powers. Is he talking about the spiritual powers that sort of stalk abroad and that might be uh, mesmerizing, distracting, enchanting the people at Colossae? Well, of the three of them, three, the spiritual powers argument would certainly provide a necessary contrast with Jesus. Very straightforward concept Jesus and evil powers. Unfortunately, we don't actually have any other references to be used that way until about the third century. So if Paul is using it that way, he's the first man using it that way. It seems unlikely that he would use a phrase that his readers would not grasp. Second, essential principles of an aerial study. That seems pretty standard in Paul's day, but doesn't seem to capture what he's saying here. Really, Paul would have to give more detail about exactly which area of study he's talking about for this to make sense. And that leaves us with the first fundamental components of the universe. You say, well, what does Paul mean there? Well, I would suggest this. Paul in Colossae, and in his letter to the Galatians where this phrase occurs the other times, is really addressing people who might be mesmerized by material things. Rules about diets, for example, as defining their spirituality. And in the ancient world, much more than our world, of course, they intuitively thought about a much closer connection between material things and spiritual things. So, my own tilt in this passage, and you know, any one of those three could be a legitimate uh, meaning of what he's saying here, but my own instincts are he's talking about some sort of attachment to material things, attachment to finding the meaning of life in material things, an observation of material things. He will go on. Colossians 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul there seems to be saying, don't allow your thinking to terminate on the material things, and judge each other in terms of that. Remember that these things point beyond themselves to spiritual realities. When you think of all of those things that I listed a few moments ago, of temptations we might face, parallel temptations we might face today, are they not all wrapped up with material things? Consumerism, politics, hygiene, science. These are all materially based things. They too fall vulnerable to the same uh, criticism. So Paul is calling on the Colossians to be vigilant, to be very wary of these very plausible but deceitful philosophies, ways of viewing life that are being presented as alternatives to Christ. And that moves in then to the foundation. The foundation for how one views the world for Paul is not the material universe, 
It is Christ. Paul, of course, has already developed, by this point in the letter, quite an elaborate understanding of Christ. He's talked about him as the firstborn of creation, as the head of the new creation. He has a very deep understanding of Christ already set forth in this letter. Now, he sort of returns to that. Notice what he says here. Not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. First thing he makes is a statement about Christ's being. A staggering statement. This man is the one in whom God dwells. That's hard but amazing teaching, isn't it? Had you been around, wandering around the Sea of Galilee, during the time of Jesus' ministry, and have seen Jesus, you would have seen a man who looked like every other man you met. But in that man, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. That is a staggering statement. He's not implying, of course, here that God is somehow confined to Jesus' body. What he's pointing to is the fact that in Christ there is an amazing and unique union between humanity and deity that applies to no other human being on the face of the earth. It's also, I think, a statement about Christ's significance. Christ, he's saying here, is the great fulfillment of God's purpose for humanity. Simply saying that Christ is God and man really means nothing unless we understand the significance of that fact. What is the significance of that fact? In Christ we have the breaking in of the divine into creation in a unique way. And the dwelling language, the indwelling language here, is very powerful and very eloquent concerning that. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, we have the description there of the temple. What is the temple? The temple is the place of God's covenant presence. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is placed. Yes, God dwells over the face of the whole earth, but he is specially present in the temple according to his covenant promise. That is where one must go to meet with the covenant God. And when Solomon completes the temple and has the Ark, this box, in which God has said, it's in there that I dwell covenantally with my people. When he has the ark delivered, we read this. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, the place where the ark of the covenant had been set, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Notice the language of filling there. That's the language that's being applied to Christ by Paul in Colossians. The temple, as I said, that's the place where atonement is made. Once a year, the high priest sprinkles blood, and the high priest alone, by himself, sprinkles blood on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant in order to atone for the people's sins. It's the place where the people go to meet with God. It's the place where the people's prayers ascend to God. It's the place, 
Going back to Paul's earlier comments about philosophies, it's the place where life makes sense. How do we know that? Psalm 73. Psalmist says, I, I was in despair because the good die young and the wicked seem to live forever and when they finally die, they die peacefully. And it made no sense to me, he says, until I went to the sanctuary. I went to the place where the Ark of the Covenant is set. And then it makes sense. When I thought how to understand this, he says, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary, then I discerned their end. There I saw that which everything was heading towards. And finally, all of the chaos of the world around me, all of the unfairness and injustices and inequities that I see in the world around me, finally, they made sense because I saw the meaning of history, the meaning of human history, when I was confronted by the temple, the place filled with God. And in the New Testament, of course, this role has been fulfilled by Christ. He is the one through whom humans know God. He is the one through whom we pray to God, through whom our prayers ascend to God the Father. He is the one through whom the world makes sense. The problem of evil is a difficult problem, but it isn't solved by looking back to its origins. If there is any solution, it's found by looking to Christ and the cross. And the resolution of evil then, at the end of time, in terms of the cross and resurrection. Paul has already covered much of this in Colossians with his references to Christ as Redeemer and as Wisdom and as Sovereign, as the one in whom all things hold together. Remember that? The one in whom everything sort of makes sense. As the firstborn from the dead. And that surely is the sort of the foundation for repudiating Everything else that sets it up as an alternative. Nothing else can deliver that which only Christ can promise. You want to understand life? The Bible presents Christ as the answer. I know there's that cheap joke about, you know, the, the, the fundamentalist, and, you know, I don't know what the question is, but the answer is Jesus. You know, there's a certain, you know, there's a certain sometimes simplisticness to the way we use Jesus. But bottom line is, Jesus is the answer to the meaning of the universe as a whole. You want to transcend death? Is death a problem to you as it is to me? Bible presents Christ as the firstborn from the dead. You want to be part of the great drama of the meaning of life. The Bible tells you to turn from your rebellion against God in whose image you are made and put your trust in Christ as the one where God meets humanity and where humanity meets God and the two are reconciled. So then, we have the imperative and then we have the foundation. Why should you follow this command? Because of Christ. Because it would be ridiculous to do anything else in Paul's mind. And that brings us then to the reality. You might say, well, that lays on my shoulders a burden that is almost too heavy to bear. And Paul then points to the reality. He says, and you have been filled with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. 
That's the amazing thing in this passage that Paul does not terminate the language of fullness on Christ and leave it there. He picks up that very language and goes on to talk about the church. As God filled Christ, so Christ has filled the church. Paul is here offering encouragement to the Colossians by making a real connection between the foundation of immunity to these false views of life, Jesus Christ, and life in the church. The foundation is not something far away. The foundation is not an abstract idea to which the Colossians, or any of the very cleverest Colossians, can get some sort of access. He says they've been filled in him. Everybody in the Colossian church, every believer in the church has been filled with Christ in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells. Paul offers no precise details on exactly what the Colossians have been filled with. He will start to flesh this out a little bit later. But the context here is this. He's just reminded the Colossians that their lives are essentially to involve a deepening realization of who they are already in Christ. Paul is sort of saying, because you are who you are in Christ, therefore repudiate these false alternatives. Those who believe in Christ and who he is and what he's done and does do themselves enjoy all the benefits of Christ. All the benefits, if you like, that you used to have to travel to the temple to try and get a little taste of. We see this in John's Gospel. John 2, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But then John gives the important gloss, doesn't he, here? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple is about to be fulfilled. The temple is about to be replaced by Christ. And then, of course, when we move to John 16, we get that fascinating statement where Jesus is talking to his disciples night before his crucifixion. He's talking to his disciples and he's using the language of departure. And the disciples are inevitably distressed. They're about to lose their friend because he's about to depart from them. If ever you've parted from a loved one, even for a short period of time, you know how it pulls on the heartstrings. Well, here, Jesus seems to be talking about a definitive departure. He's going to go. And he notices that they're looking downcast. And so he says this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. He's talking there about the coming of the Spirit. Well, what does the Spirit bring? The Spirit fills the church. And the Spirit is the person through whom we are united to Christ and Christ is present to us. Jesus is saying, if you like, my body has to go away so the Spirit can come, so that everybody can get access to me. Not just those sitting in this room, 
but those across the face of the globe who are filled with the Spirit. Makes sense, doesn't it, of where you can say in Luke 7, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. You read the New Testament, John the Baptist is a pretty fantastic guy, really, isn't he? He's like number two in the New Testament. After Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest. The whole of the New Old Testament sort of culminates in these two guys. John the Baptist and Jesus. And Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you, than those born of women, none is greater than John. But then he goes on to say something counterintuitive, paradoxical and spectacular. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What is Paul, Paul, what is Jesus saying there? Well, united to Christ, reconciled to God, forgiven of sin, but not because of sacrifice of lambs and goats, but because God himself in Christ has taken the punishment on his shoulders. Believers now have access to God the Father through the prayers of the Son, in a way more intimate than even John the Baptist had. And as I said, he was a pretty great guy. And they enjoy that intimacy of communion that comes through being united to Christ. Adopted by God as his sons and daughters. And and, uh, read it in that passage in John, but of course John says there as well, he says, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. Remember that way that Moses, meeting with God, in the tabernacle was described. One of the ways that highlighting the intimacy, I might say the superiority of Moses' relationship to God over that of all the other Israelites. We're told that when they were in the tabernacle together, God and Moses, the Lord would speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And we read that and think, wow, that must have been fantastic. And then you read John and realize, wow, that is the privilege of every believer today. Every believer speaks to and with God as one speaks to a friend. Brothers and sisters, this is a great passage. It lays out a significant imperative. Beware of those who would squeeze you into the mold of false thinking about reality. It's deceitful. It's deceitful. It promises what it cannot deliver. It promises something that is not as great as Christ, in whom all the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. And don't let that break your spirit in terms of thinking, but I can never get there. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Christ, you're already there, you're already filled with Christ. And Christ is the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Rejoice, for you already enjoy that intimacy with God that Old Testament saints could only dream of. Let's pray. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your work in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our union with him. We do pray, O Lord, that day by day your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives, uh, that we would taste more and more of that which we are already, those who are beloved by you in the Saviour. 
For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.